Well, good morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. It's going to be a launching place for our study. If you want to stick your finger in Galatians 5, we'll be moving rather quickly to Galatians 5. And those two texts will help us lay a foundation of where we're going this morning. Let me join with Kyle in welcoming each one this morning. We have a number of guests with us today. Some of you are from out of town, and you've chosen to be at our church family today. And we welcome you and thank you for coming. Others may be visiting the community, and maybe you're looking for a church home. We're certainly glad to have you today. If there's any way that we can minister to you or help you or answer any questions, we'd certainly be glad to do that and love to talk to you about being a part of our church family here at West Main. If you were here last week, you know that we kicked off our theme for 2018, Becoming Like Christ. And so our Bible classes and our reading and lessons are going to be reflective of that. And Stephen has actually done a wonderful job this morning and parlaying the songs that fit into the theme and the lesson because we're going to take a value or virtue that the elders talked about each month and talk about that as a way that we can seek to become more like Christ. Stephen began this morning with a song, The Fruit of the Spirit, which is based on a text in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You already claim because of the word that I've spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Focus on that thought for just a moment. Abide in me, Jesus said. If you will abide in me, some versions say remain in me, and I will abide and remain in you. The branch, and we know from the analogy here, doesn't bear fruit. If you cut the branch off of an apple tree or an orange tree, it's not going to produce anything. It must stay connected to the vine. And so Jesus said, you're not going to produce fruit unless you stay with me, abide in me, stay connected to me. And so as we think this year about becoming like Christ and developing the fruit that we're talking about this year, we got to stay connected to Christ. We got to stay close to Christ. We have to understand what it really means to abide in him, remain in him and to become like him. In Galatians chapter 5, we read of the specific things that talks about being the fruit of the Spirit. In this context, which actually begins in verse 16 of Galatians 5, he talks about the fact that we need to walk in the Spirit. And if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And what Paul describes here is what every accountable man and woman and boy and girl has experienced, if you're honest with yourself. There is a battle that rages within each of us of the flesh against the Spirit. And there are times when our fleshly desires want us to do certain things. And he says in his text, you cannot do the things that you would. I mean, if you ever thought, I'd sure like to give them a piece of my mind. I'd like to tell them. I'd like to. And you think, no, that's not really the way a Christian ought to act. I, I, I need to dial that back. There are things that our flesh would tell us to do that we can't do. And, but if we're guided by the flesh 
and he mentions the works of the flesh here, we're going to end up in a place we don't want to be, not only in this life, but certainly in the life to come. But then he contrasts that in verse 22 with the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so in becoming like Christ and staying connected to Christ and to be able to bear the fruit that we're talking about and these 12 different virtues and values that we're going to be describing each month this year, we need to understand what they are. So we're going to take a lesson each month and describe the fruit and we're going to begin the Galatians 5 text and go to the virtues uh, uh, Christian graces we find in Peter and connect the couple even with James 3 to get the 12. We need to understand what these are. And so we begin this morning with love. Now, I know last year our theme was love more, give more. And so I'm not going to take nine lessons from 1 Corinthians 13 to talk about love again. But we're going to take a lesson today and really look at some ideas about love as the fruit of the Spirit. And then next week I want to come back and talk a little bit more about becoming like Christ in love and talk about some specific applications from what we learned in our lesson today. So we begin by thinking about what is love. Well, maybe to understand it, you know, sometimes you can understand what something is by looking at what it's not. And that helps us to understand better what it is. Love is not indulgence. And in our culture today, people have the idea that you uh, love someone by indulging them in a lot of things. Sometimes parents think they can buy their kids love or a man can buy a woman's love with expensive clothing or jewelry or material things. Love is not indulgence, nor is love tolerance, a broad-minded attitude that just accepts any kind of a lifestyle, any kind of a religious notion, no matter how deviant or perverted it might be. It's not love. It's not loving someone because we're tolerant of, of something. Not only that, love is not just a feeling. Now, I think love involves feelings, certainly. But that's not all there is to it. It's not just a quiver in your liver or an ocean of emotion. That's not what love is. Someone said that love is an overworked word for an underemployed emotion. Well, that may be the case. But love is more than feeling. Love is not something that is uncontrollable. We hear young people sometimes say, Oh, my, my head is just spinning out of control. Or, or I, I'm just falling in love. Or I just can't help it. You know, it's not just young people. Norma Jean and I watched uh, Dateline last night of a 50-some-year-old woman that got duped by a guy known as Dirty John, who claimed he was a doctor and wooed her into falling in love with him and marrying him, and he was a con man. Do any of you see that? Now, she thought she was in love with someone, and when it finally was discovered who this guy was, he wasn't a doctor. He wasn't anything he said he was. In fact, he'd been arrested several times uh, and, in fact, tried to kill his da her daughter eventually. It's crazy. It's a crazy show. But this woman thought she was in love because of she was just uncontrollable. She was just head over heels in love. 
Better be careful if you get that kind of feeling around you. And our culture day equates love with sex. Our society seems to think that that's what love is, but responsible people, moral people, Christians understand that certainly the two don't necessarily go together. People may engage in sexual activity and there not be love involved. It may just simply be lust. And sometimes you hear someone say or some girl say, well, he said, if I loved him, I would. And ladies, the answer to that is, if he loves you, he won't ask. All right? Love is not just sex. Well, what is love? Well, there's four kinds of love and words that are used in the Greek language to speak of love. And one of those loves has to do with carnal or sexual desire, and it's the word eros or eros. And you immediately recognize we get a word like erotic or eroticism in our English uh, words from that. Interestingly, that word is never used in the Bible. It's used in secular Greek literature, but it's never used in sacred literature. And so there's three other words in the Greek language, and these three are used in the Bible. One is phileo or phileo, and this word means a close friendship. It is a love that speaks to a feeling or an affinity that we have for someone. This word is used about 25 times in your New Testament. One example is John 11 in verse 36 where it speaks of Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus and how Jesus wept. And the Jews looked at Jesus and said, oh, how he loved him. That Lazarus was Jesus' friend. And, and there was an affinity for him, a feeling for him, the close friendship that he had with Lazarus. And the word love is used that way. And then there's the word storge, which refers to family relationships. And it's used in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 that talks about brotherly love, that we're to treat each other with affection, with brotherly love. And so it's the love of a, of a mother for a child, or it's the love within a family. And this word is only used a couple of times in the Bible. But the word that is the most often used word is the word agape, and it is a word that speaks to the will, to the mind, to the volition. It is that kind of love which seeks the highest good of other people. It is the word that is used in the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 that speaks of the 15 qualities of love. It is used in Matthew 22 and 37 uh, that is used to speak about the great commandment and the Mark account that was read this morning. It is the word that's used in Ephesians chapter 5 of how Christ loved the church and how a husband ought to love his wife. And it is the word that the apostle of John repeatedly uses in the epistle of 1 John and talks about the love of God and the love that we ought to have for one another. It is love of the will. It is said by Barclay, it's the highest form of love in the Greek language. It is the intelligent estimate of the object of its love. R.C. Trench says, agape is a word that was born within the bosom of revealed religion. W.E. Vine says, Christian love, whether exercised toward the brethren or toward men, generally is not an impulse from the feelings. It does not always run with the natural inclinations nor does it spend itself only on those for whom some affinity is discovered. Love, he writes, seeks the welfare of all, of everybody, regardless if we have an affinity or feeling for them or not. And then Barclay goes on to say about love, 
that agape is un unconquerable benevolence, undefeatable goodwill. Agape is the spirit in the heart which will never seek anything but the highest good of its fellow man. It does not matter how its fellow man treat it. It does not matter what and who its fellow man are. It does not matter what their attitude is to it. It will never seek anything but their highest and their best good. That's the love of the will, isn't it? And so that is what we're talking about when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. It's the word that's used here in Galatians 5 of the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now let me make two observations here about love. One, love is a matter of choice. Love is something I decide to do. You see, that goes against the popular notion of just this feeling that I, I can't help but have this feeling, or maybe contrary-wise, that I can't help but have a feeling towards someone that is not the right kind of feeling. No, I choose love. Paul said in Colossians 3 and verse 14, to put on love. That, that's a choice, isn't it? And so if love were something that was beyond my control, that I just couldn't help it, that I'm just overwhelmed by it, then why would God command something that you can't control? You can control it, and love is a matter of choice. But the second observation is that love is a matter of conduct. Love has to do with my behavior, with my deeds, with the way I live. In 1 John chapter 3, and in verse 18, John wrote, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth love is a matter of conduct when i studied for this lesson i ran across a quote from my friend d bowman who wrote in one of his books the greatest manifestation of love is not saying i care but what can i do in other words what d was saying that love is a matter of conduct love has to do with behavior and how that we act toward another person i mean all of us can talk until we're hoarse but our heart will always be read in our actions and so love is not necessarily demonstrated in a sermon that someone like me would preach but it's going to be demonstrated in how i treat my wife when i leave the pulpit and how i treat my brothers and sisters in christ and how i treat my neighbors and how i treat my fellow man Love issues itself in behavior. So, let's talk a little bit as we take the last half of this lesson and think about the importance of love from a scriptural standpoint. And I want to notice with you six things that the Bible has to say about love as a follower of Christ. And we want to think about this, that we are focusing on becoming like Christ Bearing the fruit of the Spirit, being connected to, to the vine. And so, what does the Bible say about that? Well, love is the character of the Christian walk. In Ephesians 5 and verse 2, he says here to walk in love. Back in chapter 4 and verse 2, he says we are to walk worthy of the calling by which we are called. Some versions use the idea of the vocation with which we were called. And so our vocation, our Christianity, our walk, our life, we are to walk worthy of that. 
Well, how do you walk worthy of that? How do you live in such a way that complements Christianity? Well, it is to walk in love. Our calling was out of love because God loved us. Even while we were yet sinners, God loved us. And he sent Christ to this earth, and so he calls us to walk in a similar fashion. It is the very character, the very nature, the very essence of what Christianity is all about. And so we, we begin in the month of January and think about becoming like Christ with something that's the very core of who he was and who we ought to be. But secondly, it is the motive for Christian deeds. We'll have motives behind the things that we do. You know, it is possible to do a good deed and have an improper motive. You know, the book of John talks about that people did certain deeds to be seen of men, that they might have the praise of men. And so maybe good deeds were done, but they were done out of a hard or a motive that was an improper motive. We may do things to curry favor with other people. We may do things because we know that if we don't do those, maybe someone is going to say something about it. I mean, there's all kinds of motives that are not necessarily the kind of motive that we ought to have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 14, Paul said, Let all that you do be done with love. What, Paul? Let all you do. Not some of what you do, not most of what you do, not 90% of what you do, but let all that you do be done out of love. And so as we get inside ourselves and examine our own hearts, it's a good question to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? How, why do we live like we live? Why do we treat other people the way that we treat them? Is it with a hidden agenda? Is it with a selfish reason? Or do we do it out of heart of love? Thirdly, the importance of love is spoken of in the Scripture from the standpoint that it is the very secret of Christian unity. Back in the Ephesians text in chapter 4 and verse 2, it says here that we are to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, how do we keep the unity of the Spirit and do it in the bond of peace? How is that possible to do? Well, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 2 says that we are knit together in love. Now, one version translates that, that we are united in love. Knit together in love. United in love. And so, if we're going to accomplish what the Lord wants us to accomplish, that is the unity of the Spirit, that is to peacefully work together for the cause of Christ and a local church family, then it must be done out of love. Love for God, love for the Word of God, love for the purpose for which we're called, love for one another, love for the lost, all of that will bind us and bond us together in the way the Lord would have us to live. It is the secret of Christian unity. Not only that, it is the regulator of, of Christian liberty. In Galatians chapter 5, in verse 13, Paul said, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
Now, apparently, when you read this text in Galatians chapter 5, there were some issues among the Galatian brethren. If you go back to verse 1 of this chapter, he tells them to stand fast, and he used the word liberty again, and the liberty by which Christ has made you free, and not to be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Apparently, there were some that were trying to bind circumcision and taking the Christians back to Judaism. We know from Acts chapter 15 that there were some that taught that the Gentiles, as a prerequisite to Christianity, had to be circumcised and converted to Judaism before they could become a Christian. And Acts 15 and that Jerusalem conference were told that's not so. The, the apostles never taught that, and God never commanded that. Nevertheless, here we are in Galatians, and we see that this issue has, in, has taken place. And down in verse 4, he says, You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, what about the issue for first century Christians that have come out of Judaism and certain activities certain holy days were important to them would it be wrong for them to observe them well you go in colossians 2 and romans 14 and 15 and we find the answer there is no in fact he says in romans 14 that to one person a day may mean something to another person not anything but not to bind that upon your brethren and so what he's talking about here in Galatians 5 of, of the liberty, he says that we've been called to liberty, but don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, we, we might put it this way. There are any number of things that the Lord has given us the liberty to do or not do. Matters, we call them sometimes in the work of the church, matters of expediency, we refer to them. You know, there's some churches in our area, at least two that I know of, maybe more, that don't meet on Sunday night. Now, when we lived in Tampa a number of years ago, the Henderson Boulevard Church was the first church that I knew, or one of the first that I knew at least, that went to Sunday morning-only services. And uh, they received a good deal of criticism from brethren around the Tampa Bay area that some thought they had gone into apostasy. I mean, how can you love the Lord if you don't love the Lord enough to come back on Sunday night? Of course, the only thing was they met for three hours on Sunday morning. They were meeting for the exactly the same number of hours. They just met from 9 to 12 instead of meeting for two hours and going home, eating, taking a nap, getting dressed again, driving back, and meeting for another hour. So I never saw how they were not loving the Lord less. But anyway, be that as it may, they took a lot of criticism for that. Wouldn't the local church have the liberty to decide on the first day of the week how many hours they meet, how many services they meet, whether or not they meet in the morning or the afternoon or the evening? You know, when I was in Kazakhstan a number of years ago on mission work, uh, in Kazakhstan they worked seven days a week. Uh, there was no way you could have Sunday morning service. All the brethren were working. And so we had service Sunday night when everybody got off work. And that's when we met. Were we wrong? Well, of course not. We're, we're at liberty to that. So I just use that as some, an example collectively that there is, there is liberty within what God has told us to do and how to implement things. You know, there, there are personal things that we might do that we might observe. 
you know, we just come through Christmas. I said a little bit about that when I had a sermon a couple weeks before Christmas. Uh, now that it's kind of behind us and everything, I might say a little bit more. You know, there are people that are Christians that really enjoy that as a time to celebrate the birth of Christ. You say, oh, no, that's wrong. You can't do that. Well, it's not a religious holy day, and we certainly don't do it collectively as a church. Would there be anything wrong with a person that wanted to think about the birth of Christ and honor Christ privately? I can't find anything wrong with it if they chose to do that. Now, certainly you ought not to offend the conscience of someone else or try to bind that up on the brethren. I know any number of people that have been converted out of denominationalism that have been taught that, and they will admit to you, yeah, you're right. There's no authority for a celebration of that, and, and, and we don't know when Christ was born, but you know, it's just a special time for me to think about Jesus being born. Now, you know, I can do that July 25th or December 25th. If I want to, personally, privately, just like the Jews could, could hold the certain holy days that were important to them. As long as they didn't bind them on the Gentiles, they had the liberty. You see what I'm saying? So there may be any number of opinions. You know, a number of years ago when I was a young preacher, well, I hate to say it that way, um, <laughs> but it was a number of years ago. I remember Bill Wallace uh, putting out an issue of the Gospel Guardian of a hundred things that were matters of opinion, and I'm, I'm the only one that's right about all 100. And he listed, and they were matters whether a Christian could be a police officer, whether a Christian could go to war, whether a Christian could vote. You know, those three things, for instance, I've known Christians on both sides of those issues. And then we have a liberty. Some of you are with me on this. You're going, oh, okay, yeah, I see that. All right, well, think about it. Now, how do we treat a brother or sister in Christ that have a different opinion about those things? Love them. Love them. That love is the regulator of Christian liberty. Number five, love is the basis of gospel preaching. Ephesians 4 and verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love. And then Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9 said, we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart you not only the gospel, but also our own lives because you become dear to us. What a, what a beautiful, tender passage. Oh, Paul speaks about the love that he had for these brethren and in preaching the gospel to them. And so as we preach the gospel, we need to preach it in love. And all of us that preach publicly or teach publicly or even privately, we need to be sure that we're speaking the truth. Certainly we need to speak the truth. But what's the motive behind it? Love. Not to, just, not to win an argument. Not to show we're right and someone else is wrong. Not to show I'm going to heaven and you're not. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose is to convert people and to lead people to become like Christ. It's the basis of gospel preaching. And then really it's the heart of all relationships. Next week we're going to talk a little bit more about this and about the great commandment. When the lawyer asked Jesus in Matthew 22, what's the great commandment? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. 
And then he said, the second's like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. All relationships. Relationships spiritually, relationships physically here upon this earth. Healthy, happy relationships find love at their core. And so as we think about this virtue, this fruit of the Spirit, are we walking in the Spirit? Are we producing the fruit of love? Is it seen in our deeds, in our endeavor for unity, in our teaching, in all of our relationships? Are we what Christ would have us to be to become like Him? Well, that's what He wants. He wants us to become like Him. During the 17th century, the British politician and prime minister at the time, Oliver Cromwell, had sentenced a soldier to death for crimes. And as history records, the execution was to take place at the time the bell tolled for curfew in the evening. And so it came time for the bell to toll and for this deserter, guilty of crimes, to be executed. And the bell didn't sound. The soldier's fiance had climbed up into the belfry, the bell tower, and clung to the clapper of that bell to prevent it from striking. She was found, of course, and she was summoned to come before Cromwell to account for her actions. She wept as she showed the great prime minister her bruises, her bloodied hands. She said she would do anything to save her fiancé. As the story goes, Cromwell's heart was touched. And he said, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. To a much greater extent, when we think about love, we see the Savior's bruised and bloody nail-scarred hands and his side riven by the sphere and his mangled feet and the crown of thorns on his head and how much greater love did Jesus show that died for us on the cross? He did it because He loved us. You know, Ephesians 5 and Revelation 22 pictures us as the bride of Christ. And Christ is the bridegroom. We're betrothed to Him. And in His love for us, no sacrifice was too great to bring us into a relationship with Him. Ought not we to reciprocate that love that he's had for us and walk to become like Christ in all that we do. I hope this month we'll specifically think about this virtue, this fruit of the Spirit, and focus on how can I become more like Christ in my love. As we close this morning, we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. God commend his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And through faith and repentance and baptism, you can have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus and appropriate that love and begin to walk in love and to become like Christ. If you've wandered away from that pledge and obligation from former days, would you come back and make your life right with God and seek to become like Christ? While together we stand, while we sing. Away from